Hi, we are in a new episode of the History and Politics podcast, and we have a, a great guest. We have Karol Karpinski, who is a Polish economist working at the World Bank in, in, in Washington, D.C., uh, and we are going to talk to, to so about a lot of things. So, hi, Karol. Uh, hi, Camilo. Great pleasure to be here. Yeah, so I I, I think it was interesting to, to know you... you You work it in, in, in Bangladesh, which I think it is curious because it's a country that sometimes is on the news, but not many times. And it's a large country. And uh, I, I think I, I, I mentioned this to you about a, a film about called Bangla, about a uh, 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 young Bangladeshi living in, in, in Italy, which I, I think it was interesting. I, I kind of feel that sadly, because of, of the pandemic, not just a lot of, of, of tragedies have happened, but also a lot of really interesting films that were going to to be open on cinemas have, have been postponed, including, including this, that I think it kind of speaks about kind of the the, the globality of, 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 of the of the people from Bangladesh, which uh, I, I think it, it's not necessarily that much known. Uh, not at all. Uh, and that was a great film. Thank you very much for recommending it to me because you did, I remember on Twitter. Uh, yes, uh, Bangladesh is a country of almost 200 million people, uh, which, you know, it's what, around two-thirds of uh, the U.S. population, uh, but uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't get talked about uh, in the same way. Uh, everybody assumes that it's just a four-third world uh, corner that doesn't have any special significance, uh, but it's actually a, you know, a I would say it's quite at the center of globalization. So what you mentioned is quite uh, interesting, a Bangladeshi community in Italy, uh, which uh, normally you wouldn't uh, expect to actually exist, but it is out there. And uh, this is just uh, one of uh, dozens, if not more, Bangladeshi communities all around the world, from North America to uh, continental Europe uh, to the rest of Asia. Uh, It is quite incredible, especially since all of those communities kind of date back to perhaps 50 years back, perhaps 60 years back, nothing more recent. So it's also an area without that much of a tradition of migration, unlike, you know, overseas Chinese, for instance, uh, uh, who have been uh, going around for hundreds of years. Yeah, that's that's quite particular. Uh, speaking about globalization, I think that probably one thing that people know about Bangladesh is kind of the the, the their importance in the textile sector. So, so, so can you talk so, about about that? It's that keeps being so central in in. In, in it is, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It is still uh, very central. It's not the only industry. Uh, there are. Uh, There are other areas of the economy that Bangladesh is developing. Um, the pharmaceutical industry, although it is not nowhere uh, quite as large as the one next door in India, uh, it, it is pretty important. Actually, uh, they've recently signed deals uh, for producing, uh, I think, both the Russian and the Chinese uh, coronavirus vaccines. Uh, Uh, and there are there's a number of uh, other fields, uh, uh, and of course it's uh, a country where agriculture remains quite important. Uh, but it is still uh, next to uh, 
international remittances from overseas Bangladeshis. The textile sector is still one of the, the powerhouses of uh, the economy. Uh, and in a sense, uh, uh, it is probably going to remain that way uh, for a uh, few years or perhaps even decades uh, to go because uh, uh, China or Southeast Asian countries like, like Vietnam or like Thailand, uh, uh, they're getting a bit too rich to sustain uh, that kind of uh, industry and kind of Bangladesh as well as some of the African countries like perhaps Ethiopia, might uh, be getting windfall from that. Um, so it is uh, still uh, fairly central in, in Bangladesh. It is also, uh, in a sense, uh, one of the more important ladders uh, on the sort of social, uh, of the social mobility, because um, it employs predominantly women, uh, and uh, those women, if not for that industry, would likely have been, would, would have worked either in the farming industry or in many cases, basically be like personal servants or, or, or sort of uh, households, uh, personnel of uh, rich Bangladeshis. And actually, you know, that is not a very good job. So for some of those folks actually moving from you know, cleaning floors and cooking and looking after children in some uh, rich dude's house to uh, the uh, Bangladeshi tends to call it RMG, ready-made garments industry, uh, is actually like something better, which I think is uh, is a fact that does not uh, get fully appreciated outside Bangladesh. Yeah, I think it is. Uh, you have mentioned uh, a lot of uh, things that are really important. I think that uh, there there has been a recent paper, I think, by the National Bureau of Economic Research, uh, mentioning what, what what you have mentioned more or less that you know, particular the the economic rise of, of China is making like cost of living much more higher. So you know, the the, the people that work in factories. Is going to 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 have to have salary increase and not necessarily all the economy in the world is, is going particularly that well now to to to, to kind of afford like kind of higher um, costs of particularly in the fast fashion um, brands and and industry at large. So so that explains why why I think uh, um, it, it it is central in many ways, and and as you you mentioned, uh, not not just Bangladesh, but other parts of, I, I think uh, probably of, of, of Asia, of Africa, and, and and some argue even Latin America. Um, uh, probably people don't know, but but in Peru there is I think the largest textile, um, at least uh, as as in area in uh, at least of textile selling, which is Gamar. Uh, so, so there are some interest in, in in bringing some factories here. You know how much it it cool. That is very interesting. That is very yeah. interesting. I, I had no idea, but uh, again, you know, I don't speak the language and I don't know that much <laughs> about Latin America. We used to yeah. have uh, a bit of it uh, in Poland too. Actually, my both my grandparents uh, were working in one of those textile factories. Like my my grandpa was a tailor, my nan was a seamstress. Oh, it's a pretty, pretty heavy, rather 
backbreaking work. Uh, but at that time, uh, it was like uh, you know, well, mid 1970s to, to late 1980s. That was also uh, a lifeline for the country in terms of getting some of the hard hard currency. Yeah, I, 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 yeah. I mean, it's it, it's a complex industry, and, and and what I just was going to mention is that, uh, like in, uh, like the textile sector is obviously not as large as in Bangladesh or other countries, but it employs a lot of women uh, in Peru. So also that that is a, a really important issue because. Um, in in Peru, there have been a lot of of, of different kind of, of catastrophes. Some some were political, like in the case of tourism, but even some were natural. So there was an earthquake, like a lot of years ago, that basically wiped out a complete city. And in, in not in in Ancash, which is the region north to Lima, so the few people that that you know like <laughs> that survive, a lot of them moved to Lima directly because it's like. Um, there was like the city was basically completely destroyed. Another kind of you know catastrophes like, and and th- those a lot of different kind of issues have led to a massive immigration to, to Lima. So in some ways, Gamarra remains kind of of, 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 of a place to relative opportunity until the pandemic kind of hit and it has hit it quite badly. But it it is um, it is quite complex to know what's going to happen in the future. And because of that, I think they're going to, to depend a lot and trying to, to bring some um, of the factories that there is a possibility of close to China to try to bring into to Peru. Um, but when when you mention, I think, the, the issue about women in, in Bangladesh, I think it's, it's worth mentioning. I think Bangladesh is a majority Muslim country, but at the same time, I think it has a, a traditional reputation of being much more secular than other uh, majority Muslim countries. Is, is that the case, I think? Uh, absolutely. Uh, it is a complex issue, though. Uh, in, uh, in a sort of very brief five-minute cliff notes format, uh, Bangladesh founding that the very, the very separation of... Uh, 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 the country from Pakistan in 1971. So we're having uh, this year, we're celebrating the 50th anniversary of Bangladesh as a country. That very founding was connected to the uh, sort of socialist, uh, secularist uh, ideology. And this is like Bangladesh as a secular country uh, is still written uh, into the country's constitution. So it was that was always a very strong current and I sort of interestingly, uh, even though uh, but the partition of India uh, resulted in mass sort of ethnic cleansing and moving uh, people between sort of Hindu and Muslim communities across borders, so that uh, the resulting, uh, particularly Pakistan, uh, ended up being more ethnically and religiously, uh, more religiously, not really ethnically, but more religiously homogeneous, uh, um, uh, Bangladesh, so East Bengal, even before the foundation of, uh, of Bangladesh, East Bengal uh, was more diverse uh, religiously, uh, strong uh, presence of Hindu majority um, had been uh, the case even after the partition. Uh, but anyway, so the findings are very secular. 
then things got a bit complicated uh, because uh, uh, afterwards, uh, um, uh, throughout uh, a series of assassinations, coups, and uh, different uh, power groups uh, coming and, and seizing power in the country, it sort of alternated between uh, the more nominally secular um, groups and those uh, favoring more of a Muslim conservatism. So it is, you know, th th there are both currents, uh, but uh, if you ask about the sort of the median, um, it's definitely more secular than what you'd see in Pakistan or in some of the countries uh, on the Arabian Peninsula. And more importantly, uh, even religious, even pretty, I would say, far or, you know, conservative religious uh, folks tend to be pretty fine uh, with women participation uh, in the labor markets uh, and in the broader society. As you know, the, the prime minister is a woman and so is uh, her main rival, the, the leader of the main opposition party, and they've been alternating uh, at the top post for the past two decades. Uh, so there's something in that. What's kind of interesting too is uh, uh, Bangladesh has been pretty successful in the family planning. So uh, for a while already, the fertility has been sort of hovering around 2.2, 2.3. Uh, so, again, even the more conservative factions of the population are, for instance, fine with uh, contraception or family planning. Yeah, I mean, uh, that was mentioned actually in a, in a report that Box did. I think the, the Box plays, the, the one that, that was playing in, in Netflix, and they mentioned that. And it was curious that, you know, like... I, I found curious that in an episode about like uh, anti-conceptives, like they 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 mentioned Bangladesh and 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 I think in, in several like I think Bangladesh is, is a country where there have been a lot of kind of uh, and I think they have also mentioned in the case of vaccination. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. There's there's been very uh, generally historically uh, very successful vaccinations and all sorts of other campaigns, which perhaps is a good uh, moment to introduce the sort of social infrastructure of Bangladesh, which is fairly unusual. So you've got one thing in Bangladesh that doesn't quite exist anywhere in the world, which is BRAC, the world's largest NGO. But I don't know even if you know the name NGO is really fitting of what BRAC does. It is NGO in terms of a legal form, but other rather than being sort of an advocacy group uh, the way uh, a lot of NGOs in the West or elsewhere are, uh, they're just a big conglomerate. They literally have their own chains of stores, their own schools, their own university with a public health and public policy school, uh, their own, you know, they have shares in a commercial bank and so on. Uh, but the amazing thing about DRAC uh, is that, and uh, it started as uh, the Bangladesh Rural Action Committee back in the 1970s during the times of uh, poverty and neglect uh, right after the Liberation War, uh, they've got presence well down to some of the tiniest villages. So you go to a very rural place and what you see, you know, police station, a mosque, 
and a little BRAC school or a BRAC health center. Uh, and that actually infrastructure, that infrastructure, which then was replicated by some other NGOs and some other organization, was extremely successful in bringing things like uh, market finance, uh, like uh, the treatment for diarrhea and, and diarrheal diseases, or vaccination campaigns all the way down to the smallest communities. Yeah, that that is curious because uh, being from Latin America, this might sound like uh, sometimes like when I think some Americans might be surprised, but actually in the radical left, there is a lot of distrust to, to NGOs. Uh, and the radical right too, I think now, particularly later, but... Yeah, it it was very high the distrust on 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 on, on, on NGOs, particularly the ones that, that were not based, uh, you know, uh, in Peru, but you know, kind of had foreign funding. So so there are some that that have to do some work uh, that is important, but generally they are linked to some degree to to the church, either the Catholic Church or, or evangelicals. Um, So, yeah, that's 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 curious. Uh, yeah, I think that in the Peruvian case, as I mentioned, I think that this trust only has been gained when when the the relationship that, that the NGOs have is much more institutional to some degree. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. so in that sense, uh, I think that um, yeah, that that because it is a, a quite of a topic i think in 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 economic development like the the role that that you know kind of uh, um when the i think bangladesh is a curious example because um i feel that that is also a very particular country in in in, in different contexts and 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 what what you mentioned is is something that that, that makes uh, a very kind of unique, uh, as you mentioned, social infrastructure. Because, yeah, as, as I mentioned, in Latin America, in reality, if someone will have tried to do that, it wouldn't have worked. Uh, there have been like even politicians that are wealthy trying to do that, and they haven't been able because like there is this trust, obviously, of politicians too. So. So yeah, I mean there the there is a kind of uh, um, a much more lim- limited way to 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 kind of, of of NGOs to to expand it. So so what will you say? It is another issue that 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 it often is not that much known about Bangladesh. Oh gosh. Um... Uh, there's plenty. Uh, let me think of, uh, of a couple. I think one thing that's not particularly an issue, but I, I just uh, wanted to say uh, culturally, uh, it is lumped together in South Asia with uh, Pakistan or Nepal and India. And what uh, gets uh, really forgotten about is that geographically, it's just much closer to Southeast Asia. Like, Uh, I can tell you, when I lived in Dhaka, uh, our sort of two-go getaway place would be either Kuala Lumpur or Bangkok. Uh, 
a flight from Dhaka to Bangkok, of course, before the coronavirus, uh, would take something two, like two, two and a half hours, uh, which is way shorter than uh, a flight to Mumbai or Delhi, not to mention Islamabad. Uh, so the presence of Bangladeshi communities uh, in Malaysia or Singapore or, or Thailand uh, is uh, at this point, I would say, much stronger than in India. It's kind of funny because Indian rights uh, still uh, uh, has this talking point about uh, Bangladeshis taking over India, sneaking through borders, which is uh, at this point fairly absurd because it's much easier to find a Bangladeshi person in Kuala Lumpur or Singapore than in any Indian city. Uh, and I think that also makes uh, uh, Bangladesh a very underrated but quite pivotal ground uh, in the coming struggles uh, between India, China, uh, the United States, the, the West. There's already been uh, some, uh, some, some signs of uh, things uh, to come. For instance, uh, India and China uh, sort of going... Uh, uh, head to head in trying to take over uh, Dhaka Stock Exchange. Uh, more recently, just last week, uh, there was uh, a little ruckus caused uh, by some remarks of the Chinese ambassador uh, during a, a meeting with the press in Dhaka about uh, warning Bangladesh not to join forces with the so-called Quad. Um, and uh, so I think that this dimension, just because Bangladeshis sort of look differently and have a different language and a different uh, culture uh, than those uh, Asian countries, uh, that uh, gets that dimension completely not noticed uh, by external observers, I would say at their own peril. Yeah, that that is interesting. It, it, it's it's certainly something that I, I don't think it's it's that much known. So I think we, we, we could move to, to to another topic, which I think is a topic that I think is going to become much more um discussed in the future, but but I feel that I'm surprised that it isn't as discussed as in the present, which is the the issue of international education, like uh uh, I feel that that uh, because of of the pandemic, it has been affected a lot. But I think that there are possibilities that that kind of um, uh, there things uh, um, change a lot. Like uh, as we were talking about Bangladesh, like a lot of people maybe not know, but. There, uh, as international students in several countries, one of the largest numbers of international students are, are Nepali. Um, I think there wow. was actually, actually a, yeah, it's it's curious, and 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 I, I think it is it is a, a, an interesting topic. I, I, um, so I think you have a very personal experience with international education because you you study in 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 the Netherlands. So, can you talk about a little bit about that? Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I'll be happy to. So um, uh, my personal story was uh, that I was born and raised in Poland, uh, in the northwest of the country, uh, just across the border with Germany. I went to primary and well, primary high school there. Uh, afterwards, I moved to Maastricht, uh, which is a small town uh, right across the border, 
between the Netherlands and Belgium, uh, and also close to to the German border. So, kind of the, in in this uh, uh, triangle of or, or, uh, of uh, uh, European borders. So, uh, and I, I I did my uh, bachelor's and grad school there. Uh, and that was a very interesting time. I was there in sort of uh, 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 in, in the late noughties, early 2010s. And at that time, uh, the Netherlands was one of the very few countries in continental Europe uh, offering uh, a whole variety of first and second degrees in English. Uh, so in a sense, uh, a lot of my classmates from the same year uh, oh, did not even think very carefully about going to the Netherlands. Uh, uh, it was uh, more that uh, if you wanted to study in a different country, you could go to the UK or Ireland, but a living cost and tuition fees uh, were super expensive there. So if you weren't on scholarship, uh, that became a slightly less attractive situation. Although still, like in my year, uh, most kids who would leave Poland to study abroad, they would end up in the United Kingdom. But those who decide to, decided to stay in the continent, uh, uh, at that time, the Netherlands was... Uh, possibly the most popular option. Now, it's pretty amazing for me to see how it's changed, uh, not even 10 years afterwards. Uh, now, pretty much every European country that I know of uh, has got a bunch of universities uh, offering uh, English language degrees in everything from you know, from cultural studies to medicine. Uh, it's quite an amazing transformation. Yeah, that, that's really, I think, very, very interesting uh, as a phenomenon. I, I was going to mention that um, there, there was a study by the American Enterprise Institute, like when, when, when uh, done by a Canadian uh, researcher. And, and when, when asked, like... Uh, uh, they they asked him in in the podcast and and he he tried to say that he wasn't trying to be biased but you know like what he was saying that still like if one sees by the rankings like it's still like uh, American institutions rank much better but but the the issue is is the costs are very high particularly in the in the the Ivy League like the or the the Ivy League at Jensen or the public Ivies. But uh, that, for example, if one sees at the cost and quality, like the the two countries that kind of were were seen as above the the rest were Canada and and and, and the Netherlands, and and, and yeah, I I, I I am aware that you know there are a lot of of of, of Dutch universities. I think all all Dutch universities offer at least you know a, a few degrees in, in in English. I think that that has led to. Uh, are really it's pretty, yeah, it's, it's pretty much, yeah, it's pretty much uh, every single Dutch public university, and there are only public universities. There is a single university, single private university in the Netherlands, uh, but it's uh, kind of uh, in the US, uh, it would be probably just called a business school. It's like a like Babson College or something like that. Uh, it just offers uh, degrees in like business, marketing, finance, uh, all the rest, all the rest are state-owned, state-funded. 
but yeah, it's. Uh, I think uh, you know, as far as I'm concerned, I think that I've received excellent education. I think that uh, uh, there are, unless you want to, uh, I don't know, just try to find your tickets to the American elites. I, I think that there are diminishing returns to Ivies. Uh, I think that uh, you know you're you're paying a lot uh, for kind of. I, I don't want to use like bad terms, but being coddled uh, through your <laughs> childhood and, 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 and youth rather than acquiring any useful skills. So, um, so uh, I, I think that, uh, honestly speaking, it's uh, uh, the Netherlands are, are underrated. Uh, the prices, the tuition fees uh, have increased somewhat uh, uh, since but I uh, paid something like sixteen hundred euros. Sixteen hundred euros for um, yeah, one thousand six hundred per year in, in tuition. A lot of it I get back from the states uh, as a grant uh, or a loan, uh, and I also had a university job. Uh, so altogether, you know, the budgets uh, would uh, uh, come together without any support from you know, my family, which was. Uh, uh, quite important in my case. I've got two younger brothers, and you know my parents were already stre stretched as they were uh, with the, the two other kids. Uh, um, so uh, I can only recommend, and I think that they there are two things about Dutch education. And you know, again, I'm not paid by by the Dutch. <laughs> I, I'm like uh, other than them giving me a good education, uh, I'm absolutely not incentivized anyway to praise it. I think like one. One thing, one good thing is uh, there are there's a greater re recognition uh, uh, of the fact uh, that uh, teaching and research uh, does not always have to go together the way it goes in American Ivies. You can be like a great teacher uh, with a, a less stellar research output, and the other way around, uh, and different career tracks uh, in uh, in the Netherlands. Uh, sort of recognize it to a greater extent than here in, in the United States. The second thing is uh, that uh, the, the, the the sort of notion of IVs or elite universities is not quite present there. There are slightly better universities and slightly worse, uh, but much of it is more at the level of individual subjects or specializations. So, for instance, if you're, I don't know, interested in like, farming or food or like genetical engineering as far as uh, plants and, 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 and farms etc are concerned you go to Wageningen. Uh, Delft uh, is a technical university that's particularly famous for civil engineering a lot of uh, those wonder works when it comes to dams the water management etc that the Dutch are rightfully famous for uh, many of those uh, kind of stem back to Delft Eindhoven is another technical university which is in the uh, hometown of Philips the corporation so they're actually pretty well recognized when it comes to things like robotics self-driving cars consumer electronics etc so in a sense uh, there is uh, or something for everyone uh, and there is uh, you, you don't when you speak to Dutch kids you don't have this notion that uh, no matter what I do, I just need to go to this particular university because that's where I uh, 
get the social networks and have tickets to the elites. Uh, uh, there's generally there's there's over representation of. Uh, uh, Leiden University, which is the, the oldest Dutch university among like cabinet members. That's also uh, when the current prime minister, where the current prime minister Mark Rutte uh, graduated from. Uh, well, you know, with with a lot of effort. I don't remember how long it took him to get his bachelor's, uh, uh, but it was like it could have very well been uh, like a double digit number of years. But anyway, let's uh, let's let's not be cruel here. Uh, let, let's hope that you know he enjoyed his time there. Uh, but uh, for those reasons, I think that uh, yeah, Dutch universities are underrated, and I think that they they uh, they're doing a pretty decent job. At least you know, I'll, I'm a happy customer. Yeah, I, I think it is curious because um, I think in, in Latin America, kind of the the thing that I, I maybe people don't know, but uh, uh, public universities in, in Argentina are of free access. So uh, the, there is open access, although it's pretty hard to pass the first year. So um, like basically that's rare than, than, than having a, an entry exam kind of the the general studies year is kind of where, where a lot of study, uh, students kind of fail. But then, like, um, I think that the complex requirement is that you have to, particularly in the best ranking university, which is the University of Buenos Aires, you have to have the, um, um, knowledge of two foreign languages. So you have to have knowledge of a Germanic language, which could be English or 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 French or, or no or French or 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 German and and um, and of uh, Romance language which will be French or Portuguese. So that are, are the requirements. I, I and think in some universities in India that they have the requirement. Obviously not 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 Germanic and, and Romance language, but but a foreign language. And that's actually kind of funny. Uh, I can tell you because. Uh... A good friend of mine actually graduated from uh, a college in India affiliated with, I think, the German Chamber of Commerce or something. And that particular course, because of that affiliation, they had a German language requirement. So <laughs> there was, uh, I know an, uh, an Indian dude that actually had to learn German uh, uh, because of his college. Yeah, that's 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 quite curious. So, so yeah, I... Yeah, I mean it. It is. Uh, I that is an, an interesting issue. For example, I think you know, like uh, the Pontifical Catholic University of, of Chile. So Chile has a different system. For example, like, but it is considered, I think, the best in a lot of areas. It is. Uh, they they were the the, the 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 university in charge of the of the Sinovac research of like the effectivity of the vaccines in in, in Chile. And and it, it is really strong on, on a lot of, of 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 rankings. For example, in, in the KSI uh, rankings, I think it ranks above the, the the University of Southern California. And I am not an expert in university budgets, but my guess is that its budget is much lower. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think um, they are doing something that I think is really interesting, which is. They are hiring international uh, professors from from basically everywhere. I, I think they have hired recently professors from Turkey, from you know, some sometimes from other countries in Latin America, 
but you know from the US from from the UK and the thing that they do is like I think Israel used to, to do that uh, which is basically in the two first years you can teach in English and then you but you have to commit to to learn uh, Spanish like I think in Israel they they committed to to learn Hebrew um um but I think it's going to be interesting that I know that, for example, in Peru, like the the the, the uh, another Catholic university, the difficult Catholic university of Peru, which also the the, the, the best ranked university in, in, in Peru, um, like there was even a talk, like there is a pro, uh, professor that even presented a project that at one point, like all all degrees should be taught in English, which didn't like had support, but the fact that someone presented that project, it was kind of, 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 of life changing. Like, and it, it, it will sound very, very curious, but I remember I was, you know, like before the pandemic, you know, like, uh, um, started because the Peru has uh, had sadly a very kind of, uh, terrible management of the pandemic. And there it's, it's sadly the country with the highest, you know, the, and this rate per capita, uh, and and that has led that basically all a lot uh, all social activities are kind of forbidden, like stores are open, but beyond that, so so it's it's difficult to to see normalcy. But but when before the pandemic started, like I always remember, I was walking down the in the park, and and you know some random kids were talking in in, in English, and this is not the like I don't live near the. The kind of uh, touristic areas where of, of Lima, where I think there are foreigners or, or, or you know the expat, you know the communities. So these were just random kids talking in English, and and it was curious. Uh, this I, is incredible, you know. I mean, I had a similar. I'm having a similar uh, kind of feeling whenever I visit Poland, uh, my home country. Which you know, when I was growing up, I think it was. I didn't even think about immigration. I think it was like, who the heck <laughs> would like to live there? Everybody wants to leave, right? Uh, but uh, the, like now, now that I'm visiting, it is very difficult. Uh, uh, probably it doesn't happen. Like uh, whenever, whenever you're uh, catching uh, um, uh, an Uber or or getting I don't know food delivered, that's going to be a, a foreigner. Uh, and increasingly, like I think, like once uh, I was at the Warsaw Central Station uh, at the Starbucks, uh, like all the baristas uh, on the ship were speaking in English. I was like, "Wow, things times are changing." <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, the other day I, I saw an an interview of a of a teacher, like a, a Brazilian who worked as, a, as a, an English teacher in, 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 in China. And he was saying that, you know, 10 years ago, like he was in the airport of Shanghai and like he went to an Starbucks and, you know, he was thinking that he was going to, like they were going to understand in English and nobody spoke English. And, you know, like he has worked like for years there and, you know, like the when the last day he was there, he went there and, you know, like everything had changed. Like everyone was, was speaking English and how like things have, have changed. Like the, the, the kind of, um, of language acquisition is that has grown a lot. Although sometimes it has to do with, with particular technological issues, because I think in Iceland, the issue is that for example, uh, since there are so few people that speak Icelandic, a lot of the software are, are not in Icelandic. So, 
even more. I think some of, uh, softwares are in in, in in are in some Nordic languages, but Icelandic since there are very few people that speak it. So because of that, like there are people that just speak English, even if they're Icelandic, because like particularly the ones that work in tech for, for what I have here. So it, it is it is curious. Like English is becoming much more global despite Brexit and all. <laughs> in, in, uh, totally, in, totally. In, uh, another story from that, uh, uh, and, and I, I kind of prove uh, that English is getting global and was sort of almost like people like you and me are reclaiming that from the actual native speakers of, of that language. Uh, so in, in Belgium, as you know, there is a Flemish community and uh, the Wallon community speaking Dutch and and French respectively and in the past uh, French uh, was uh, more commonly used to communicate between uh, those two communities uh, and, and in theory still each of uh, the community is supposed to learn uh, the language of the other community as the second language at school uh, but uh, the Dutch, I mean Dutch speaking Belgians, the or the Flemish, they don't want to learn French or they don't want to speak French anymore. Neither uh, are the Wallons keen on learning Dutch and they just speak English with one another. And the same thing I've been hearing, I, I saw, I think, a piece of news from the Swiss television, the same thing might be happening in Switzerland where sort of Swiss Germans and French Germans are just going to revert to uh, to English as their sort of inter uh, inter-community communication language. Yeah, I think there there is another story that has to do with with Belgium and Peru in a in a kind of curious way. So, um, uh, there, I think one of the major translators of of of, of, of philosoph- Indian philosophical texts, like uh, the the Ramajan and a lot of, of other kind of, of texts, uh, to a Spanish was a, a Peruvian who actually like. He know a lot of, of languages because he went to to he studied in Belgium, so he had to to study uh, you know like in a school in the, and he studied in an international school, and he he intended to to then uh, move to he was living with his family and then he intended to go to to university in France. And he had to study, like, I think, uh, French, Dutch, uh, German, because also German, I think, is, is, a, is a national language, English. And, and he had studied, like, Latin and, and, and Greek. And he had been able to buy a, a dictionary of Sanskrit, and he kind of amateurishly learned Sanskrit, and then he learned Pali, and then, you know, he learned wow. a lot of language. Wow, that's super impressive. Yeah, he... he he then, like, he taught for many years in, in, in Peru, and then, like, the, 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 a lot of political issues, like, happened. Then he, he moved to Argentina, and he, he worked more as a researcher rather than a, a professor. So he then was in some stints in, 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 as overseas researcher, so, so he was much more focused on translating. And it is curious because, like, it's true that, you know, like, at that point, it, 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 there were he studied philology originally, so so the study of languages, but it was easy for him. Like so, he, he was 
kind of uh, learning other things rather than focusing on, on the languages because he already knew new languages. So, so, so yeah, I, I think it is, it is quite I think, uh, I think it's kind of gets easier with every subsequent language uh, to the point when you get older and your memory starts failing and you can't do that anymore. But like, uh, I remember, you know, uh, it, it, it took me probably, I don't know, 10 years to learn English that I had to like learn Dutch in three and then I had to learn Bangla in one and a half now of course you know i don't i don't speak them uh, equally fluently uh, but uh, in a sense yeah, you start like recognizing patterns you start seeing like a lot of uh, common words come from the same stem uh, and you also see the sort of how, how grammars evolve uh, so i think in, in a sense uh, uh, like polyglots are just uh, making good use of economies of scale <laughs> yeah that, 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 that's true so, so speaking about languages, I think another topic that, that we should talk is sometimes how things get mistranslated, not necessarily because of the language, but because of the culture. Because I feel a lot of times, particularly in the U.S., like I think football, what, what in, in, in the U.S. people call soccer, it gets mistranslated because like... Uh, um, I think, you know, that them of the Super League, like... For anybody like I think that it has been following like football for a while, like it, it doesn't seem like a an a real idea because a lot of the the national identity sometimes is very centered in, in football. So, for example, I think the 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 the, the example of, of 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 Bolivia is a curious example. So a lot of people say that Bolivia is a very divided country between the highlands, which is the the Andean parts, and the the lowlands, which is the tropical parts. But the issue is that a lot of the players come from from the lowlands. Like the the the, the top scorer of, of Bolivia, Marcel Martins, is from Santa Cruz. Uh, actually, like the the academy, like the Tawichi Aguilera Academy, has some people wanted to to win the 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 Nobel Peace Prize because it is like an academy that 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 has formed a lot of great players. But their original in, intent was kind of try to drive off kids from from kind of like criminal activities because like uh, particularly in, in countries like Latin America like and particularly kind of working class kids like since particularly like in years before I think now there are more universities but there were very few opportunities because even technical education has been in decline in many parts uh, so kind of as a way to to try to escape and see another prospect so so I feel in many ways, like sometimes it is discounted the the, the national sense of, of of identity that is very very strong in football, and sometimes that gets missed by by a lot of people. Totally, totally. One thing, you see, I just like one thing. Uh, uh, when I moved to America, one thing I realized that sports in the United States is so different than sports in Europe uh, just because it doesn't seem to have that kind of rootedness. You go and look up some kind of baseball or um, uh, or basketball team or, or American football team uh, and you check out the Wikipedia page and what you say that actually <laughs> that team used to be called something different in another city but some gentleman some rich person just bought it and brought it over uh, that's kind of absurd right i mean like can you imagine 
the, 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 the sort of idea that I don't like. You'd, you'd buy Arsenal and uh, move it uh, from Islington uh, to Sicily, for instance. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it, it just like it, it, it cannot happen. Uh, so uh, this is this is pretty crazy. I mean, like it, it all gets rooted in uh, in, in history, in uh, political sympathies, uh, even in ethnicity, and so on. And I, uh, that kind of gets ignored. But I guess what we just saw with the European Super League uh, was. Uh, um, uh, the, the 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 clash that was going to happen simply because of globalization and the sorts of uh, uh, clubs that, that gets uh, run as pure businesses and therefore they're chasing chasing uh, wherever the profits are. So I'm not a football economist. Uh, <laughs> there are guys uh, that, that there is like one, I can recommend that to uh, the listeners. Uh, Ignacio, Ignacio Palacios uh, Huerta wrote a book, Beautiful Game Theory, How Soccer Can Help Economics. Uh, I, <laughs> I haven't finished it, but it's, uh, uh, I only had very good reviews. So uh, you guys go check it out. Uh, but anyway, I just, uh, I did look up some data and I uh, saw that for instance, at this point, the English Premier League gets 45% of its broadcast revenue from overseas. So, like, only 55% comes from their home market. So, I guess uh, that kind of uh, in the heads of managers delinks the, uh, the club, uh, the game, uh, the community uh, from the local uh, town, uh, region, country, and so on. Uh, but it's not going to be sustainable. Like I think that even people in America or in Asia or in Africa that uh, watch European or Latin American football, uh, they actually watch it precisely because it's something different than than that more capitalist-oriented uh, sport in America. Uh, so. You know, I mean, I'm I'm uh, I'm pretty happy, all things considered, uh, that the, the the European Super League thing failed. Not because, not only because I come from a country that does not have any prospects of getting there, uh, <laughs> which is unfortunately true. You know, like uh, Polish club football has been a bleeding wound uh, ever since. Uh, our, our national team has improved somewhat. But it has not really lifted uh, uh, the clubs and and the league uh, together with it. So, uh, but it, it's it's simply just nice to have a sense to have an uh, an origin myth, so to say, right? So the the, the idea about those uh, uh, migrants or soldiers or outcasts or whoever else that 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 banded together in the early twentieth century or the late nineteenth century. And started playing. Uh, I think it's very essential for for football as a game, and we can't do without it. Yeah, I mean, it is very curious because, like, some people like were saying, for example, about like the death of Maradona, like saying, like, why are people like on the streets, like, because like Argentina also had a very long lockdown. Uh, the, the also like most of Latin American, the, their their death rates are very high, um, but. The issue is that, for example, Maradona was kind of the, the, the largest symbol of Argentinian history, probably. Like, it, it was the only symbol, I think, that 
will unite the country and and it kind of did in a kind of of, of, of chaotic way and and it is complex because it's difficult like i mean argentina still has great players like it's soccer league generally ranks pretty well on on, on soccer league rankings and and it is known overseas but uh but maradona was kind of a, a more than a than than a than a football icon it was kind of a uh a, a very iconoclastic uh character which it is difficult to 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 kind of of, of half in the present because in the present kind of a lot of uh people particularly in in the in the in the kind of more uh larger um soccer leagues maybe in, in the smaller that the, there's still kind of more amateurishly uh, aspects but i think that you know because of advertisements on a lot of things like they cannot make uh uh statements that are controversial or kind of like um outlandish sometimes but uh but that was kind of what what made maradona who he is and and i think that it, it is interesting because we have been talking about globalization but i think it is it is quite important to notice that that globalization doesn't necessarily means that the nations disappear but sometimes that the nations and 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 countries try to to in some way not, not just sell but 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 tell about the, their their own identity, and I think in some ways, like despite as controversial as Maradona was, like I think Argentinians were were proud of Maradona in a very deep way. In and I think uh, that sometimes gets gets missed. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, they they were, and, and rightly so. As a funny uh, side note, uh, I should say that not only uh, not only Argentina was very proud uh, and remembered Maradona very fondly. Actually, he was a real star in Bangladesh. Funnily <laughs> enough, Bangladesh is uh, really more so a cricket nation. Cricket is much bigger thing, but out of the whole subcontinent, Bengal actually is in the relative terms where football is still more popular than than in other parts. Uh, so the World Cup, uh, the World Cup is still a uh, big event uh, in, in in Bangladesh. And since 1986, uh, most of the country actually roots uh, for Argentina. So the very very first time I've ever come to Bangladesh, so the very first time I stepped uh, on a plane was in 20. 2014, I believe, 2014. 2014, that was the year of the World Cup. And uh, believe me, that was pretty stunning because I stepped out and got out of the airport and the whole like the whole city really was full of Argentinian flags. Like there's an Argentine flag on almost <laughs> every building. They're really, they're really very loyal supporters uh, of of uh, Argentina national team. There's also a smaller contingent of Brazilian supporters that actually sometimes end up brawling uh, with the Argentine ones. Uh, uh, so that is uh, a, a nice way sort of tying our last part of uh, the conversation with, uh, with where we started. <laughs> Yeah, I mean it is it is quite curious. Uh I mean I think we, we I I don't think I have tell this story but uh I f- remember reading that you know like the the so the the last World Cup like 
the U.S. didn't qualify in the last FIFA World Cup, like the football international football tournament. So normally, like I think, U.S. had a lot of of tourists to to the to the World Cup. Like the last one in 2018 was in, in Russia, and I remember reading the international press, and some argue that by at least by the number of people with, with flags, like that Peru was the country that had more fans there, and that was really impressive but i remember the mood of a lot of people wanting to 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 sell their house to 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 go to to the to to russia or you know like to sell their car or whatever uh, because wow. it, it it was like peru hadn't qualified i think in 36 years so so yeah a lot of people get got in in depth to to go to see the the national team and it was no crazy. yeah this is this is the same thing i must say uh, i think this is you just nailed what makes the most devoted fans most devoted fans are from places where football is a big thing uh, but that have been or had been miserably failing uh, for a long while. I remember exactly the same thing when Poland qualified for the World Cup uh, the very first time. I don't know. I was uh, what? I was, I was uh, thirteen. I was thirteen years old at that time. We lost miserably. That was in Korea, South Korea, Japan, two thousand two. But that was the first time we qualified since. Uh, 1982, I believe, or something like that. Like, so uh, we we went crazy. We went crazy. I was like, I, I perhaps my mom still has it somewhere. Uh, like me and my brothers, uh, we we bought like uh, 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 national team football jerseys, and, and the whole block of flats was out celebrating. And of course, you know, we we uh, got very sad very quickly. <laughs> as as it happens, as it happens, you, you get used to it. So. <laughs> but like you know, the, the, all those like surprises, like Croatia, the third place in France, nineteen ninety eight, Greece when they won the Euro, uh, that sort of things. I think that is really what arises uh, the the nation and the community, especially since often those countries don't really have uh, uh, many other reasons for joy. Yeah, well, I think it, it it has been a really great conversation. I think we could leave it here. So, so thanks, Carol. Thanks a lot, Camilo. Always a pleasure. That was uh, I had a great time, uh, and looking forward to uh, catching up. Uh, thanks, and thanks, listeners. Yeah. So I'm gonna leave with with a song of uh, called "Why No" by Mika Martin. <laughs>